Welcome to the Hockey Strength Podcast, the official podcast of SCAF, the Strength and Conditioning Association of Professional Hockey. My name is David Rosales, and today I'm joined by my co-host, Mike Batenza, along with our guest, Mike Vaughn. Mike has extensive experience as a strength and conditioning coordinator. He was the minor league strength and conditioning coordinator for the MLB's Arizona Diamondbacks. Then he spent seven years with the Arizona Coyotes, then the Phoenix Coyotes. He was also a strength and conditioning coordinator for U.S. Ski and Snowboard. Now he has shifted into the private sector and is applying all those skills he learned from different sports in those kind of overseeing positions and on the floor coaching positions to consult for teams and organizations across many sports and disciplines. Mike Potenza and I have talked about a few times over the last few episodes the role of the coordinator position and how that's growing and expanding and Mike probably has among the most experience in that kind of role. So this is coining it the coordinator episode. We go deep on the skills needed for that position, what you'll learn in that position, what he's learned, how it's applicable across many sports. And Mike is a guy he mentions, he doesn't consider himself a hockey guy. He's worked in baseball, hockey, skiing, even basketball. And he takes different skills from each of those sports and, and forms a, a unique skill set that he has. Along the way, we're also gonna hear a lot of great stories about the influential people in his time in Arizona and beyond, such as guys like Shane Doan in classic SCAF alumni series fashion. We're gonna get a lot of great stories in this episode. So without further ado, here is Mike Bond. Mike, welcome to the Hockey Strength Podcast. Thank you so much for joining Mr. Mike Potenza and I. That's great to be here. Thanks for uh, the invitation. I'm looking forward to it. So we got another, another, this is our second Mike sandwich podcast. So if there's any confusion with the name Mike, then we'll, we'll just have to clarify. Um, but, but I think we have it under control. Why don't you start by, by sharing how you got your start in strength conditioning? You've done a lot of interesting things we're going to, we're going to get into, but what was, what was your start and your, your initial impetus to become a strength coach? Uh, you know, it, it goes back to when I was an undergraduate student. Um, you know, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest and I was going to a, small uh, private liberal arts school, University of Puget Sound uh, in Tacoma, which is where I grew up actually. And um, I I was very interested in exercising. I enjoyed training myself and working out and things like that, but I was very interested in how to do it better. I figured there was a reason to do things right and a reason to do things wrong. And I saw a lot of different things. I just want to learn more about it. I was very fortunate to uh, get involved with the exercise science program at the university with uh, some fantastic professors. It really kind of ignited that interest of learning about training. And uh, it was at that point, I wanted to become uh, a strength conditioning coach in professional sport, which was still at that time very new. Uh, some teams had them, some teams didn't uh, across all sports. Um, and so uh, shortly after I graduated, I got my CSCS, I think it was like 1994, 95. And I went into private, not private practice, but worked for a private physical therapy clinic for several years, working with injury rehab, things like that. But as I was attending conferences, I was trying to find ways to separate myself from others uh, in in trying to eventually become a professional strength conditioning coach. And um, at that point, a master's degree was almost unheard of in the field. And so I decided to pursue a master's degree. And I went up to Western Washington University in Bellingham and um, turned a two-year program into a three-year program. Uh, but really uh, enjoyed the hands-on experience there. And I was actually working with the club hockey team and, and doing some things with some different sports teams there and really enjoyed it. And, and sure enough, as soon as I graduated, I had uh, discussions with a lot of baseball teams about coming to work with baseball. 
because they were really expanding. They had multiple opportunities because they had minor league teams. Um, you know, every team had, you know, four or five, six minor league teams, and they were starting to fill out positions at the, at the time. There were seasonal internships, and uh, I just figured it was a great place to start out. And, uh, and uh, that's where my first professional team uh, job started with the Arizona Diamondbacks uh, when I was hired as a minor league strength conditioning coach, and that was uh, – 2002. So uh, as I like to say, they won the world championship, then they hired me and they haven't won anything since. So um, the year after they won the world series, I, I went there and, and spent four years there and, and, and had a phenomenal experience. As a Yankee fan, that 2001 world series though, still, still, still breaks my heart a little bit. Um, oh, great series though. Yeah. Unbelievable. Seven game series. Honestly, I know it was a hockey podcast, but I think this is one of the probably the best world series of the last 30 years was 2001 Yankees Diamondbacks. But anyway. Yeah. But, but before I go on though, I do have to get a parting shot in though, because 2001, when I was finishing my master's degree, I worked in the front office for the Seattle Mariners. And uh, that was the year we won. That was the year we won 116 games. So it was a a great, it was a great year to be getting free tickets to uh, the Seattle Mariners. Cause that was each row's rookie year. Yeah. Yeah, He won the MVP. uh, It was was unbelievable watching that, that young man always, young man but uh, watching that player play and uh so yeah and then we ran to you guys in the playoffs and the rest is history yeah well end of a dynasty there for us so but true good run though good amazing run. run amazing run. and after 9 11 it was just, just amazing still gives me chills yeah. but um yeah. let's say on the baseball for a second you you jump sure. into the role with the, the minor league coordinator with the diamondbacks i mean even at the mlb level i'm sure strength conditioning was still like people were unsure it was also the steroid error that might that might have changed the context, but just jumping into that role, what was your perception of how coaches, players, front office perceived uh, strength conditioning, and, and what did you do to kind of you know work your way into into those circles? Uh, that's a great question. One of the reasons I went to Arizona because they were so progressive on um, really integrating and embracing the strength conditioning side of things. Um, you know, our our uh, minor league athletic coordinator, athletic training coordinator, was a man named Greg Latta who came from the White Sox. Uh, and he was there throughout the years that Steve Rogers and Vern Gambetta were working their magic at the White Sox. So uh, a lot of the Diamondback staff had come over from the White Sox during expansion, and they were trying to build a similar program, which was very progressive and integrated with strength conditioning programs and coaches. So they were the first team to have actual full-time strength conditioning positions at every minor league level. Um, you know, the two short season ones were internships, but most teams at that point either didn't have strength conditioning coaches at every minor league level, or they're in interns or seasonal paid positions. Um, you know, we were allowed to do some very progressive things. Like for some baseball teams, squatting was considered progressive. There are some teams that didn't allow squatting. Uh, we were doing um, uh, shoulder maintenance programs uh, that I think some of us thought we were like a cult doing with our pitchers before and after starts. Uh, at a minor league level, we didn't allow, we didn't allow ice. Um, to shoulders after guys pitched, uh, you know, which is becoming common now, but 20 years ago, it was, it was considered, you know, heresy to, uh, to do such things. Um, you know, but if you think about it, it makes sense. Why would you try and restrict blood flow to an area that desperately needs it? Uh, you know, but for the players, it was a badge of honor, but at the minor leagues, we could get away with doing that. If Randy Johnson wants an ice bag, he's getting an ice bag and you can't change that. But the minor leagues, we were really integrated doing some really neat things. And, and, um, I really uh, enjoyed being with Arizona specifically, seeing the other cha- the challenges other teams had. Now, <clears throat> that being said, it was also a great experience for me to, to work in pro sport. Uh, my first year or two, I spent a lot of time with our younger teams. So you have kids who are you know, 18, 19, 
2021, ranging from, you know, Latin players who don't speak English very well to kids who just got a division one college programs. And uh, for a lot of them, uh, they didn't have a lot of uh, strength conditioning experience and they loved having someone there to work with them. You know, then in one year I went from rookie ball to AAA and that was a learning experience uh, because all of a sudden you're going from, you know, the, the boys with the dreams to the men who are holding on for dear life for a career. And it's a very different culture and uh, that you have to work within. Um, and it was a challenge for me. You know, I, I got my butt handed to me a few times, deservedly so, for thinking that what I could do with an 18-year-old kid who was just drafted, I could do with a 35-year-old who's trying to get major league time back. And uh, I'm very thankful for those, those growing pains I went through. Uh, and like I said, I deserve some licks I got uh, from some of the veteran players. But it taught me how to work with veteran players versus younger players. Because there is a difference, and those are lessons that, are, that I really carried with me, um, you know, throughout my different jobs I've had, including obviously the NHL. That uh, you know, not everyone's created equal, and you have to understand the situations they're in, and uh, and work with that accordingly. So um, it was a, it was a great learning experience for me, going from you know the young leagues all the way to AAA to being coordinator. You know, throughout my time there and you know, obviously being coordinator, then you're dealing with staffing situations and, and managing that. So there are some great experiences in baseball. And as I like to say, spending your summers on a baseball diamond is never a bad thing. I want to I want to follow up with a question about the differences between between the minor leagues and, and the major leagues. And even you can even extrapolate this to the NHL and moving on to your to your to your time there. Did you find that at the minor leagues that you had more room to experiment and do things that uh, maybe you weren't sure were, were the best option, but you could like deliberately try to test things out and see if they worked that at uh, the higher, the major league or NHL level you couldn't do. And do you think that was valuable for you um, as a coach to spend some time in the minor leagues? I 100% agree. Now realize the dynamics of baseball minor leagues are very different. Uh, baseball minor major league relationships very different than NHL. Uh, minor leagues, there's huge differences in what you can do uh, in, in the CBA uh, in the majors versus the minors. So you can do a lot more type of things with monitoring or testing and be creative with different tests. And major leagues, you can't do those things. Um, and you're starting to see some of the similar rules being put in place uh, in other leagues. I know the NHL is getting a little more, a lot more restrictive on what you can and can't do. Uh, with testing uh, at the NHL level, um, but minor leagues are kind of where you can really tweak things. And, you know, you never want to be so um, novel that it was just bizarre and there was no buy-in, you know, it makes no sense. Players aren't going to do it. And if they're not going to do it or they're not going to try it, what's the point of doing it? You know, but that being said, we were allowed to do a lot of really creative things, which I think the players enjoyed. And we told them why we were doing it and we'd show them the results of what we were doing and how it was actionable. And uh, we were able to do some really cool things there um, from, a, from a training standpoint. Because as you said, this was right during the time where there was a lot of change happening. Uh, you know, the, the, the drug things were coming to the forefront. And it's not just the drugs with the players, but also staffing situations. Um, you know, there was major problems with personal trainers and, you know, questionable individuals in clubhouses. Uh, you know, like if you've had a major superstar wants his personal trainer clubhouse, well, <laughs> yeah, bring him right in as long as you're playing for us. And, you know, th that was changing. And because of everything that went down with baseball, you know, now they have very strict rules in place about who can and can't be in clubhouses, what credentials they can have, uh, what kind of staff teams are required to provide. You know, now they have to have 
uh, an actual strength conditioning coach who's credentialed as a strength conditioning coach, not a trainer with a CSCS who calls himself a strength coach. You know, there's real specific guidelines. And so some really good things came out of that. But when I was with Arizona, that was a transition time. And those rules were just kind of coming into play a little bit. There were discussions about it. You know, there are still a lot of problems. Um, I wouldn't just say with performance enhancing drugs like steroids, but stimulants, you know, things like that. They're, they're commonplace in a lot of, a lot of locker rooms um, because that was the normal thing to do. Uh, right or wrong, but uh, but it was coming to a head, and it's great to see how far it's come since. And because of that, baseball kind of leaped from being probably the most old school um, sport in terms of um, training and and things like that to probably one of the most progressive in terms of uh, training and testing and having good staff in place and things like that. Mike, on that uh, position you held as the minor league coordinator. Um, how did you, did you carry the message or set the message in, in the, um, the philosophy for that minor league system, or was it kind of drilled down from the top and then you kind of carried the ball along the way? Um, we said it, um, uh, but that being said, I wanted a very, very strong connection with the major league, um, strength conditioning coach and what they're doing. Uh, and we really accomplished that in great ways by the, by my, you know, last couple of years there. Uh, in spring training, we were switching staff back and forth to the major league club during spring training, and they loved it. And, you know, we got a taste of what they're doing. And so, and we could see what they're doing. We had regular communication with their staffs. So they knew what was going on with us, but a lot of teams didn't have that. Uh, it was major league do their thing, minor league do your thing. And, you know, send us good players, <laughs> yeah. you know? So, um, so the major league strength coach um, was a guy named David Page, uh, who had a very good relationship with and he loved what we were doing um it just in terms of trying to get players fitter we, we just wanted more athletic players we weren't specifically trying to make better baseball players at that point we just wanted guys who were fit because that was a step up from what baseball usually had right. and so we talked to him regularly about hey what kind of things would you like them to be able to do when they get here you know are there certain exercises are there certain capacities or uh, you know threshold of of characteristics you want and he loved that input um, and because of that, we built a great relationship, but for the minor leagues down, we really established it just because we could do so, so many different things. So at that level, you know, uh, as, uh, you alluded to earlier, you know, we had hall of famers on that team. You know, you had Randy Johnson and Kurt Schilling and Matt Williams, and, you know, you had player after player that were big name players and, and they ran the show and rightfully so, because they just won the world series. So, um, but they are doing one thing up there, which is fine, but we're working on something um, at the lower levels, trying to uh, get players ready to help them when they needed it. In that management role that you had as that coordinate in that coordinated position, um, obviously it's, it's very popular now, right? You were, you were doing this, the, in essence, you were doing the performance director position at a very uh, high level and with, a, with multiple teams, you know, back then, which was kind of a cool intro to where we are now in the field, right? But how did you unify the message from all the minor league teams that were, that you were responsible for, you know, like in terms of communication and things like that? Cause it's really a management role. I think we forget about sometimes, right? We think about the oh, performance director as no. being the, the one who sets the tone for the sports science metrics that get gathered and then the training paradigm and whatnot. Yeah, well, I mean, a performance director role is a management job. It's not an in-the-trenches in job, even though there's travel involved and, and a lot of long hours involved. 
it's a matter of coordinating the right people and getting the right message uh, and getting the right things done at the right time. And um, with being the coordinator in Arizona over the Diamondbacks, um, it was getting the right people in place and having amazing communication and collaboration and having their interests in mind as well as my own because you know everyone at that level wanted to develop. They wanted to move up levels. They wanted to be a major league strength coach you know, or, or learn how to do this or learn how to do that. And it was important to facilitate, um, you know, having the right kind of people that do that within what you're trying to accomplish um, and give them the opportunity to do that. And then you alluded to also the communication aspect was huge. So um, one thing, this is normal now, but at the time, you know, it was, it wasn't being done is when players move between teams, how do we facilitate communication between the strength coaches? You know, the last thing I want to have, I want to have happen was have a player show up from double A to triple A and the strength coach first question is, so what were you doing down there? So I did not want that to happen. I wanted the, that guy to walk in the door and the strength coach say, Hey, by the way, I have your workouts from what you're doing down there. Let's say yesterday was a leg day. Today we're doing this, you know, seamless. Cause right there that establishes credibility with your staff, with the player. And they go, oh, this guy knows what's going on. And he talks, he knows what, he knows what I'm doing here. I feel like I can fit right in. And that player's got enough worry about going to a new town, trying to make an impression with a coaching staff. And right there, he feels like he has a friend that is out for his interests. And so we really, really uh, enforced communication. I don't want to say enforced, but early on it was that. Like we wanted regular emails. When a player moved, I wanted to see an email go back and forth between the two coaches before the player arrived. You know, uh, or BCC Donna. We had a voice at the time. It was all voicemail. We had voicemail systems. It's like I wanted to be CC on the voicemail that was sent between them on on what was going on with that player. What were the challenges with that player? What were the successes with that player? What things does he like? What things doesn't he like? You know, I wanted that coach to be up to speed on things. So the communication aspect was huge, and uh, I think that helped a lot with the credibility with the players. And I know the staff enjoyed it as well because it you know they're a island unto themselves throughout the season. And so having that regular communication across um, their fellow colleagues was a big deal. You know, we didn't have Zoom back then. We had to use regular phones and email. Sticking on this coordinator, coordinator subject, because this has come up a few times on the podcast. We haven't really mm-hmm. dug deep. Uh, what, what skills do you think are most important for a coordinator or, or what, what fields would you recommend someone who, who would want to be in that role study or, or what, what books would you suggest they read that sort of thing compared to uh, the skill set of a traditional strength coach. Well, if you're talking about like a strength conditioning coordinator, obviously you need to have experience as a strength conditioning coach. Um, you know, I, I think you have to be a management people person, almost more so than a successful strength coach, uh, because you're trying to get people on board with what you're trying to do and make an environment which really fosters that um, communication and growth and staff that want to be better than who they are. Um, in productive ways, not competitive ways. Uh, now, if you're talking about performance director, which in case in, in that case, then you're you know you're juggling um, core strength conditioning, medical, uh, psychology, nutrition, you know, technology, data, uh, sport biometric analytics, not data analytics, biometric analytics. You have to have experience in all those realms. Um, you have to be able to, I'm not saying to be an expert in all those realms, but you have to have your feet wet in all those realms that can speak the language of each of those realms. Um, you know, if you get a guy who's been a strength conditioning coach for 20 years, but has never set foot in a medical room, he has no chance of really communicating with a physical therapist or athletic trainer who's managing. And that, that ATC or, or physical therapist is, isn't going to respect him or want to work with him. 
you know, same thing with nutrition, you know, or technology or, or, or psych, you, know, you have to have your feet wet in all those realms and understand what they do and what their challenges are. Um, I, I think that's kind of one of the biggest shortfalls when I see some teams struggle with hiring performance directors, they hire people that are too weighted in one direction and they don't get buy-in from the other um, areas effectively, um, or they try and make it a performance model based on what they know rather than what works best. And then transitioning, transitioning to your time in the NHL, what, what were the big differences when you, when you went from baseball and then you enter into an NHL locker room, which I'm, I'm sure there are similarities in the culture, uh, but also a lot of differences too. So what were your initial challenges and struggles when you, when you went from baseball into hockey? Uh, you know, it was actually looking back, it wasn't, it was actually more seamless than you might think um, because I'd worked at AAA baseball, um, which is, you know, pretty high level. Um, I worked in spring training major league clubs. So it wasn't that um, of a, of a culture shock to me to go into an NHL room. You know, what was a little more of a culture shock was the room I was stepping into um, or the situation I was stepping into. Cause when I was hired in 2005 or six, five, now, that was after the lockout and uh, the Coyotes had a new head coach by the name of Wayne Gretzky, you know, and his, his assistant, his goaltending coach was Grant Fuhrer. And we had Brett Hall on the team and, you know, Shane Doan. And you had some big names there. And, you know, I'm not a fanboy. Jeremy Roenick, Mike but, Ricci. Yeah. Well, yeah. Roenick came the, the year after, but we had Mike Ricci. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And uh, so we had some big names and, you know, hockey is my first love. So I knew all those names. And I wasn't being a fanboy, but, you know, I had to go in there and really try and figure out, um, you know, how to work with those different veteran, veteran personalities. Curtis Joseph, you know, was our goaltender, uh, much less at the coaching level, you know, working with uh, Wayne and, and Grant. And, uh, you know, we had uh, old Samuelson as one of our coaches, Barry Smith. You know, we had some heavy hitters uh, on the coaching staff. Um, we just hired a new trainer, Chris Broadhurst, who had been the head trainer for the Maple Leafs for 17 years. So, you know, he was a heavy hitter. And so here I am, the, the rookie stepping into it. And uh, with some major names on the coaching level, training level, and player level. Um, so I think that was a little more of a, a new coming into it. And, oh, and plus I had about a week to, I showed up a week before training camp. <laughs> And, and on top of that, it was the training camp after lockout. So you can imagine how, how much guys are panicking about their fitness after a year off. Um, so there were, there, those were the challenges going into, I think, just the, the personalities involved in trying to find ways to plug into it. But I was very, very fortunate that, um, you know, I had a, a guy like Shane Doan as, as the captain, who's one of the best human beings I've ever met, hockey player aside, is a fantastic human being and really was a, was a great person to help with that transition and being a communicator and facilitator of helping me work with certain guys. Uh, and, and Wayne was very, very um, open to what we were trying to do and, and what, how we wanted to do things. And, and we weren't doing anything revolutionary. I wasn't going to come in and, and, you know, change the, how everything done um, uh, that would have been very destructive. Um, but uh, I was very fortunate that those people were very, that were there to help me and really, kind of hold my hand through some things, so to speak, that helped it be much more seamless than probably people would have thought. As your experiences <clears throat> grew with these, you know, in these professional uh, sports and, and amongst these teams, how did you, how did you prepare yourself for those difficult conversations? Like telling a coach that maybe a player is not ready with rehab yet. Maybe, um, 
you know, hey, this guy didn't come in in shape, but they were banking on this guy coming into shape. You know, how did you prepare yourselves as a coach for those types of conversations? Especially yeah, those, like Wayne Gretzky. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, those are tough situations, you know, and, and especially at that time, uh, you know, 2005, 2006. Um, at that time, Mike, I think you were hired a year or two after I was. So you were still around that time, too. It's like, so seven, you know, it, it was it was not too hard to find which guys came to camp out of shape. Um, you know, now if one or two guy comes in a camp out of shape, it's a big story. It's like everyone comes into shape now, but so, you know, like I'd always be, you know, nibbling my nails on training camp day. Cause I just knew some guys were coming and just, you know, not do well. And I had to go in the room and, and a show the numbers. And then sometimes have to try and explain why, even though I had maybe nothing to do with it, you know? Um, so those were very, very tough things. I, I always just tried to have open communication all the time with the player um, as well, the coaching staff. Cause I did, I didn't mind disappointments. I didn't want surprises. I didn't want to be telling a coach that, Oh man, I saw, I saw, you know, um, this player for the last three weeks out in Scottsdale, he's looking really good and have him come to training camp and be 20 pounds overweight. And the coach go, you know, who have you been talking about? This guy's horrible. You know, I always wanted really direct communication and open honesty with, with, with them, but not pumping things up. Um, and I tried to get to the bottom of why things happen. So if there was a major disappointment, I can go in there and why, and it wouldn't be a foo-foo excuse. It was, yeah, well, from what we just found out for the last week, has been nursing a bad hamstring. So he hasn't been able to ride the bike or whatever. You know, you, I always just tried to make sure that open communication is there because disappointments and, and mistakes and, thing, and injuries happen, but you want to avoid the surprises because the surprise is where people get pissed off, both the player and the coach. So, um, so the regular communication coach, coaches and also regular communication with the players. Um, in, in, when I was with Phoenix, my title wasn't head strength conditioning coach. It was strength conditioning coordinator. And I thought that was very appropriate because in the off season, we made it, we might have one or two players live in Phoenix in the summer for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. And so I was on the phone regularly with the players and their trainers throughout the summers, just checking in, seeing how things are going. I rarely told them what to do. I just told them, you know, what we needed. Like, Hey, by the way, this guy, you know, he came into camp and he wasn't able to do this. Can you work on that? Oh yeah, we can do that. Great. You know, I don't care how you do it. Just do it. Um, and, uh, so a lot of time I had a pretty good idea of them coming in, what they've been up to, who they've been working with and what to expect. And when you have that open communication regularly, that eliminates those surprises. Sometimes you expect it like, oh yeah, you know, I haven't heard from this guy. I heard he's been on vacation in the Bahamas for three weeks, you know, <laughs> That's not a surprise when he comes in very tan, but out of shape. Yeah, I agree with that. You, you know, you don't want to be surprised. And, and that is the, that is our job a lot is to coordinate. Um, coordinating a lot of their training outside of the team because 90%, like maybe even higher, like of players go home in the summertime and have their personal strength coaches. So to get to know them and interact with them and kind of share what, what we found through the 10 months of being together, nine months of being together with that strength coach is really important. And it, and it showed, it goes back to the Mike's earlier point of, Hey, I want to have really good communication so that the players who get called up know that, you know, we're on the same page and we're, we're prepared to help them up here. And we're not just, you know, not leave, we're not leaving them to the wayside. So, you know, it's an yeah. important point for people listening. It's like, Hey, it doesn't end in the summertime and you're not going to have everybody. You're going to have to kind of build relationships with these guys outside of the, the rink and with their personal strength coach. 
Yeah, you know, and that's a tough pill for strength coaches to swallow because a lot of them want to think like, hey, they're on my program, they're an HL all-star, they're my guy, you know, and, and you know, I was like every other strength coach, I'd write up this, you know, cool booklet, spiral-bound notebook of a summer program for the guy and, you know, probably give it to him when he walks out the door. But it didn't take me long to figure out that if he has a trainer at home, whatever he's doing is going to be better than him reading my program out of a book. So that trainer is going to be able to see things and push him and, and alter things, um, you know, and, and so I knew to be more effective and as a strength conditioning coach and see these guys be able to perform at a high level, I need to work with that guy and not tell him what to do because he has experiences with that player I don't have. And he sees things every day, which I can't see. And for me to reach out to a personal trainer and say, hey, I'm the strength conditioning coordinator of the Phoenix Coyotes. I just want to talk to you about you know, what things we see. And I'd love to hear what you see. They loved that communication, loved it. Uh, and on top of that, it also puts some accountability on them. Uh, so, cause if I would tell the guy, Hey, you know, this player came to camp about, you know, with, uh, you know, too high a body fat, you know, we need to see it lower. Okay. Now, you know, he knows the heat's on him to finish that and, and figure it out. Cause if the player comes back out of shape again, it's not on me. I've told that trainer what needs to happen. And he worked with him every day. Um, so usually the, the trainers love to work with us, you know, and when I say trainers, I mean, strength conditioning coaches or whoever they worked with. Um, they loved hearing from us and working with us. They felt like part of the process because we all want the same thing. If that player comes back and has an amazing year and gets a big contract or something, well, that, guess what? That player is going to go back to that strength conditioning coach in the off season. Great. We want that. We want that player to be successful. So, uh, yeah, so it really was a job of, of coordinating communication more so in the summer than being a, a weight room strength conditioning coach, which, you know, obviously now is even more so prohibited in the CBA if we can't, can't work with in the summers. I think that's just such an important lesson for whether in the private sector or, or if we work with a team, like reach out to whoever's training your athlete the other part of the year. And, and, and Mike pretends I'd be curious to hear your experience of, and both of you guys of when a private coach reaches out to you first, you know, how you perceive that, like, Hey, what, what was your plan? Like, how, how can I get this guy ready? I, I thought it was, it was great. You know, it, it, um, it, it showed me on that side of the, the fence that they, they're, they have the intentions just like I do that we want to provide the best for the player. And, and it's not about my ego or his ego or his program or my program. It's about the player, you know, cause we want him, they want him to succeed and we want him to succeed because it can help us win. You know, and I think for me, like I early on, even when I was in college, like I would call and Matt Nichols said this on the last podcast, but I would call all of our drafted players, strength coaches and tell them how we did in testing and what we were doing for training and ask them if they needed anything. That was just, that was just me. I really, I, I, I quickly figured out like, yeah, they need this information. Why wouldn't they? need it you know that's why they call the prospect you know in a way so um it it is an important thing to do and and i think more importantly you just got to get rid of the egos you know it doesn't matter how many pros you got in the summertime or it doesn't matter how many games you've been a strength coach for in the nhl but you just it's it's the player first and that's that's where it's going to start well said i can't add to that I want, I want to stay on the, uh, on the, sh- the topic of, of, of some people you got to work with there in Phoenix and 
take us either direction, but Shane Doan stands out to me. He's a guy who's always in the media has always been portrayed as this like amazing dude. I'm, I'm sure he is. I'm curious, what are some lessons you learned from him or what are some things you maybe learned from Gretzky or someone like Curtis Joseph, just who are some key figures um, in, in Phoenix for you? And what did you learn from them? Uh, you know, I probably learned more from life from Shane Doan than I have hockey, which is a lesson right there. I mean, we would have long conversations that had nothing to do with hockey, which were some of the most enlightening conversations I've had uh, in so many different directions about, you know, everything from, you know, relig religion to political things to historical things. And, and um, you know, hockey for him is important, but it wasn't the thing. Uh, and I think that was a very important lesson right there you know obviously we're immersed in in the job so much but there is a real world out there going on and and he was always he always had his nose to the to the stone of what else is going on in the world he wanted to know what was going on in the world and he read books and and uh, you know <laughs> good books um you know but uh, he was still one of the players and one of the guys so uh, i'd say life lessons from him on that of of yeah we're working in hockey but there's life out there too and and enjoy it and embrace it uh, you know, I learned a lot of great things from a lot of players, a lot of snippets and, um, you know, some of it relative to training, some of it relative to, to other things. I remember uh, one year I, I actually called the story with Reg Grant a week or so ago because we were talking about the absurdity of some tests in training camp and how excited we get about the, the numbers, but how the numbers really don't tell much sometimes. And we were talking about how one year uh, I was doing a push-up test. I wanted, you know, torso stability and upper body endurance, whatever to push up test. And uh, Nick Boynton, who was a big physical defense when we had, uh, went on to win a cup with the Chicago Blackhawks. And uh, we had Nick Boynton, great guy. Uh, you know, he, he, he didn't do that many, you know, like 15 or 20, whatever. And then we had this first round draft pick come through. Actually, I think he was the third or fourth picker overall come through and he did like 50 some push ups, you know, 50, 60 push ups. And, and this player was a talented player, young guy. 19, probably weighed up 150 pounds. And like, we're looking at the numbers and Nick just looks at me and goes, tell you what, you put the puck in the corner with me and him and see who comes out with it. <laughs> and I thought that was just a, a great story to say like, okay, what are these tests really telling me? Like, is it, does it really matter at the end of the day? And it doesn't mean throughout all your tests, you know, obviously there was a reason I did it, but it was a, it was a great perspective of, you know, these guys get paid for what they do on the ice, not off it. And, you know, what we do off the ice is important, but sometimes we kind of put a little too much emphasis or take the information wrong within directions that we shouldn't. Uh, um, so that was a great lesson I learned in one of my favorite stories, but the puck in the corner, let me see, let's see who comes out with the puck. So great story. Great, yeah. Notice, I, no, notice okay. I didn't name who the other player was. I don't want to embarrass him. He's a, he's a very good player. He's still playing today. Um, I have a but, guess. Uh, I think I have a guess, but I'm not going to say it. <laughs> I bet you did. We're not going to say it. Um, I loved working with JR. Uh, you know, I had JR um, uh, for one year, Jeremy Roenick. Uh, it was the year after LA, uh, you know, after lockout, he played in LA and, and did not have a good year there. He was unhappy, uh, probably wasn't in great shape. I don't know. And he came to us uh, for one year and he had something to prove. And he was one of the best athletes I work with. He was in fantastic condition. Uh, he was a veteran guy um, who understood things, had a great personality that lit up the locker room whenever he walked in. Um, and he was talented, um, and I loved working with him. Just a great guy. He came in for every workout, uh, whether he played well or not. And uh, I was a, a big fan of how he carried himself, um, despite sometimes being a scratch, uh, which was very difficult for him to, to deal with, um, you know, right or wrong. But he was still professional, 
um, despite what the media stories might say, I, I respect the hell and I loved working with JR. And I know you had him at the end of it. You had him after we did for a couple of years, I think. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah. I loved, I, he was one of the favorite people I work with. Um, I only had Brett Hull for a handful of games. He retired about 10 games into that one year. So um, he was another guy who walked in the room and lit the room up, which is everyone loved seeing him. Uh, and he always had great stories to tell. So, uh, but I can't draw a frame of reference really from him. Um, you know, we had some other salted veterans who I learned a lot from, like Ed Jovanoski. You know, we had him for five years, full five years of his contract. Um, and just uh, same thing. Uh, you talk about a guy who came to play uh, and he wasn't the healthiest guy. He took care of himself, but he had injuries, but he still was a warrior through it. And uh, what those guys play through sometimes is remarkable, absolutely remarkable. And it kind of leads me to remember, like, obviously my first two, three years, we had a very veteran team. We had, you know, like I said, JR and George LaRock and Jovo joined and those guys, those, those teams didn't win. Owen Nolan we had, you know, then we went extremely young for two, three years where we had five, six rookies on the team, two, three years in a row. Um, you're talented rookies, but they're rookies and those teams are horrible. And then the last couple of years, we switched back to the veteran teams and you look what happened. We had like five or six guys at over a thousand games in NHL on those rosters from Derek Morris to Jovo to uh, Ray Whitney um, to uh, uh, remember who else we had a thousand games. Um, we had like five or six guys who had that. I, we had Mike, a young Mike Smith in goal who was phenomenal. Our backup goaltender, Jason LaBarbera was a veteran. And that team made the conference finals. So it wasn't the hotshot young youth that made the team successful. It was bringing in the veteran guys who came into experience. play yeah. and experience and knew how to play. And I thought that was a really interesting um, uh, uh, lesson to look at what kind of cultures and, and types of players win. Uh, it's great to have the young players. And we had young players on those teams. We had a young Michael Bodker uh, when he was very fast. I think you had him, you know, in more recent years, but uh, you know, we had Kyle Turris for one of those years. Um, Martin Hansel, when he was playing regularly, was one of the most dominant defensive centermen we had, you know, and so um, we had some good young players on the team, but it was a veteran heavy laden team. And um, I learned all those guys and, and I was more helping them uh, just trying to get through the days and weeks and months and they knew how to do it. I was just facilitating what they needed. They knew what they needed to do. I didn't have to remind them. I just made sure they had what they needed at the right time. So when you have the young kids, you're trying to get them in the right directions and teach them how to do things. And like with that veteran team, it was, it was really easy for me. There's a little nugget in there. We gotta, I gotta take two minutes to talk about but okay. your Jovanowski um, example, how he played through a lot of injury and stuff. And that's, that's one of the things I, I still don't have a good grasp on, and I don't think anybody could really, I, I don't know who does, but if they have the seek, they have the formula to figure it out as to who can play, who can be hurt in 70% of their best and still be a hundred percent than somebody else, <laughs> you know, like wow. it's just an odd thing to figure out. Like Joe Thornton has, I think he just played a 1650th game and Patty Marlowe's going to, God willing, he's going to break Gordy Howe's record fairly wow. soon 20 yeah. games but they've played through a lot but their 60 percent is better than someone else's 100 like Absolutely. there's in and in, in, and i guess in our field it's like okay they're broke we want to fix it get them back to 100 the car comes into the into the pit stop we're going to change the tires 
put the gas in it and we're going to put it right back out, you know, but that's kind of not the case. Like even on, even medically, right. They're not going to be fully healed or, Oh, that's good enough. I can get my show. I can scratch the back of my head with my shoulder. I don't need it to do anything else. Put me back out there. The puck's on the ground. It's like, it's not up in the air, so I don't have to worry about it. You know, (laughs) I've heard that too. (laughs) It's it's an interesting thing that just baffles me sometimes. And I, I don't, I've tried to figure it out, you know, but and yeah. like you probably, you've, you've seen it too. So. Oh, absolutely. And of course we didn't have the depth other teams did. So <laughs> literally was a drop from talent between him and the guy behind him. <laughs> um, you know, but I, I always marveled though at how they could still play despite not just injuries, but their abilities were, I mean, I, in training camp, we did, we usually did a battery of flexibility, both dynamic and static flexibility tests. And one of them is the figure four stretch, you know, where you're seated in a chair and you, you know, you bend the leg on your, on your knee and figure four, basically. And you can measure, you know, level the shin angle of the ground to see how much they can externally rotate their leg. You know, and guys are 18, 19, 20, oh, no big deal. You know, just sit right in that position, you know, but then you get a guy like Jovo or a guy who's 35 years old who's played a thousand games gel and they can barely cross their legs because their hips are such a mess. You know, they, they can't even get their knee over, but you know what? He's still one of our top defensemen. He's still going to go out there and, and make the big hit or score the big goal. So it's like, okay, what does that, what does that tell me about my test? What well, just tells me he's old and he's well used, but, but he still can play through that. Um, and it makes you think, well, what other tests then really probably don't tell me as much as I was hoping it would, um, or, or as a screen, is it really a screen? You know, I, I know like when my wife, when my wife worked with us speed skating, the, the athlete who scored the worst on the FMS every year was their most successful athlete who won five medals, you know? So, um, you know, That's there's always right? things that kind of make you really like hmm, things that make you go, Hmm, just like mm-hmm. CNC music factory said. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah. And luckily we don't have to make those decisions of who plays and who's not, you know, as long as they're ready to play and we say, Hey, there's nothing I'm, there's nothing I can say. It says he can't play coach. You make that decision. Um, that's why they get paid a lot more than we did. David asked about the player influences. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to ask you about the coaches, the coaching influences and not just in, in the NHL, but like great coaches, sport coaches um, who, who you really look back upon and say, man, they taught me life lessons, management lessons, a, a te- how to be a teacher, you know, a better teacher type lessons. Who are those people in your life, in your career? Uh, well, probably the most influential people on me uh, from a coaching standpoint. Um, obviously, one of the same with you and a lot of people is Vern. Uh, Vern Gambetta. I, I first crossed past him in, in the early 90s at a building and rebuilding conference in Seattle. And, uh, and kind of, we've been good friends for the last 10, 15 years. We talk once every couple of weeks on the phone and we used to see each other once a year, <laughs> you know, not this year, obviously, yeah. but he was one of the people that, that really uh, imposed upon me that you need, you really need to have a reason to do what you're doing. You know, you're not just trying to make the athlete tired or make the athlete sore or how hard can you work the, how hard can you work them? It's, it's why are you doing what you're doing? How does that fit into where they're trying to go? And so it actually was one of those light bulbs in my head of, oh, there's actually meaning to why I put a squat after a lunge or I do running on this day versus, you know, um, sprinting on this day. It's like, no, it has to fit into some sort of picture that, that you, need to, you need to complete for the athlete. Um, so Vern was a huge influence. And then also in my career, um, I crossed past many times with Pete Twist. 
um, who for many years was the strength coach of the Vancouver Canucks. I used the strength coach for Roger. Uh, he was there and throughout the 90s. And um, he was one of the early people trying to organize strength conditioning coaches to, and hockey strength conditioning coaches. And again, giving rhyme um, and reason to what we're doing and, and why you do certain exercises. I mean, he was doing movement screen assessments in the early 90s um, with different types of movements for hockey players. You know, can they hop on one foot and plant? Can they do a lateral jump and plant? And what are those implications? And, you know, that's, that's 20, 30 years ago, you know? And um, so Pete, I came across Pete in the mid nineties and, and kept in touch with him throughout my baseball years even. And then uh, by the time I got the NHL, Roger uh, wasn't the Canucks, but, and, and Pete had a remarkable private industry empire going with all his equipment up in Canada. Great for, for him. Um, those two guys were really influential because as I said, they, they made me think about how and why, and not just the, what, you know, it's easy to put together three sets of tennis squats or go run for 10 minutes, but like, why, what, what are you accomplishing with that specific workout? How does it fit in the big picture? Have a plan. And, um, those are kind of the big light bulbs on my head of, of really investing the time and learning what all the things mean and how they work together. You spent a few a few years working after after the NHL working um, with the U.S. Ski and Snowboard uh, is it Association USSA I think, yep. um, and and now you're doing you're in the private sector doing some consulting. So I, I want you kind of to share what it is you're doing now and what a unifying what some unifying lessons and themes are uh, between from minor leagues and ML uh, from minor league baseball to the NHL to ski and snowboard to what you're doing now. Yeah, well, uh, so just to kind of give a little background, so I'm lost for it too much, the, my time at U.S. Ski was was amazing. Um, you know, when I left the NHL, um, I was ready for a change. Um, I was pretty frustrated by um, some things and um, kind of the lack of, of progressive mentality on some things. And I think management was getting frustrated with me complaining about it, so it was very mutual. Um, so when the lockout came, we agreed to part ways. Um, and uh, there was an opening at U.S. Ski in Park City, and I loved what they're doing up there. It was it was remarkable what they're doing with a with limited budgets. Uh, they had an amazing staff. They were very progressive. That were embracing new ideas, a different staff structure, uh, very innovative. Um, and I, you know, I'm from the Northwest. I'm a recreational skier. I was like, yeah, sure, I'll ski all winter, no problem. And um, so I went to Park City and was very fortunate to be on the tail end of, of uh, Dr. Troy Flanagan's um, uh, reign there as performance director. We followed Andy Walsh, went to Red Bull. And what they did at US Ski is, is amazing. They took you know, a team that won five medals in, in 1998 to you know, winning close to 30 in 2010. They were best in the world in 2010 um, compared to other sports. Uh, and then even in 2014 in Sochi, we won more gold medals than any prior U.S. ski team had ever done. So um, what they were doing there was just so creative. It was, it was basically the international high performance model of integrating services and, and the strategies they were doing to bringing all those services together of medical technology, strength conditioning, um, psychology, nutrition, you know, having all those components aligned for the athlete rather than being siloed, never protecting their turf. And bringing it under one umbrella and agreeing with the coaches um, was really a phenomenal atmosphere. On top of that, you had the right people who were always looking for new ways of doing things. You know, they weren't trying random, let's see what sticks in the wall stuff. They were, you know, actually just researching ideas and how to solve problems. 
And um, so it's no surprise that, that we are constantly getting plucked off, uh, staff getting plucked off for performance director positions, for science positions, and strength conditioning positions. Uh, we had multiple people get hired for NBA high performance director positions, um, NHL sports science positions, um, NCAA positions. And uh, so it kind of got picked away as the years went on. But it was really fun because it was kind of like the hub of what was going on there. We were constantly being visited by uh, teams from you know, NHL, NBA, MLB, NFL, uh, NCAA, military. And we were able to pluck their ideas from their visits while they came to us and, and give us theirs because we weren't a threatening entity. It wasn't like Mike going to visit the LA Kings and saying, hey, what cool things are you guys working on? If I'm Matt Price, I'm not going to tell him exactly what I'm doing in LA. I might give him a few nuggets, but you know, it's a competitor, but US ski, we're not a competitor. So all those teams could come to us and be open about what they're doing and we could be open what we're doing. And so it was a really cool hub of ideas and innovation and, and things we were doing there. And it, it, although it looks like it was well supported, a fantastic facility, it wasn't a high revenue um, uh, organization. So we had to be very strategic about how we placed our money and what we invested in. Uh, you couldn't just you know, pick random projects, cost money. They had to be somewhat uh, you know, effective. So, um, so there I was really able to learn a lot at the feet of, of some really great people and not just the people above me, but the people around me, they had some amazing strength coaches there and, and still do. And so following that, that's when we went to Milwaukee, uh, to do work with the Bucks, uh, cause Troy Flanagan went to the Bucks, And so we followed him there. Um, you know, he was just all of a sudden he could do what he wanted to do with the ski team, but he had no but checkbook to do so. And, it, and he continued doing what he did there and, Granted, a, a certain Greek player makes him look really good, but what they were do, what they're doing there is just for what they're doing is remarkable. Um, and they're doing things that the rest of the league is trying to catch up with. From from uh, I, I'm sure they probably I think they appreciate sure on TV. He redesigned the seats the sit in, the seats the players sit in on the bench because when he got there, he's like, why do we have seven foot players sitting in folding chairs on the side of the side of the court? So he designed heated seats made for seven feet players on their bench and the players loved it and other teams were like trying to come over and get pictures of who made them and the great thing is they patented the idea so other teams can buy a set if they want but the bucks make money off it so um <laughs> you know awesome. just but <laughs> but, there, but there's a great there's a great uh example of a problem that needs a solution and that's a high performance issue right there you know there's a performance limiting issue which they solved it wasn't how do just how do we get them stronger or fitter? Those are things, but there's also you know logistical things which can have huge game-changing impacts. So uh, so Troy and I have been good friends throughout the years, and from the context I've made you know through ski team, NHL, baseball, um, what I've kind of learned in the last few years is there's really big gaps in in terms of organizations not knowing what they need and what they want. Uh, you know, they know there's this quote unquote sports science out there. They know there's quote unquote high performance out there. You know, they're not sure what it is. They're not sure how much it costs, <laughs> you know, or, or what technology they needs. And, and so what I've started doing is kind of work in those circles of ownership and management, not as much general management, usually presidents or CEOs and just trying to bring them up to speed on, hey, here's what it is and here's where you're at. And, you know, every organization has different problems. Everyone can't be the Los Angeles Dodgers and hire 30 staff to do the job. Some have low hanging fruit, which are immediately fixable and easy to fix. And they should focus on those things right now. Um, you know, some 
have issues with staff not communicating or they have why why are your two trainers have two different offices and upsides of the building that might be an issue you know so it's really just trying to bring the teams up to speed on on what's going on out there and how they can slowly make strides towards improving those gaps to help them um, compete with other teams mike um one more question for me because um, yeah. we appreciate your time and i want to not a problem over um you've been to so many great places and you know for the coaches who who have to prepare themselves for that who, who that that kind of unknown is, is kind of scary and frightening like okay i gotta pick up and move i gotta change sports you know like what are some of the things that helped you with your transition to each uh location well i think the biggest thing is is a lot of strength coaches feel like they can only work in the sport they're in um like when when an nhl strength coach gets let go, they call me and ask if I know of any NHL jobs open. And I'm like, well, if you don't want to work in the NHL, I know a lot of jobs open, but for some reason they think they have to be an NHL strength coach. And, you know, I, I bounced around between sports because I never felt like I was limited to being a hockey strength conditioning coach or a baseball strength conditioning coach or a ski guy. Um, you know, I'm a strength conditioning coach that has my feet wet in a lot of things. And I get interested and involved in understanding the sport I'm going to and just try and apply what I know towards those and not be a hockey guy working in baseball or a baseball guy working in skiing. Um, I think that the biggest problem a lot of guys have when they, when they either leave a job by their choice or someone else's, they feel like they have to get back into that field. And there's a huge world out there, pandemic aside, because that's changed everything. It's like, there's a huge world of opportunity out there. You know, when you look at NCAA, hockey, baseball, basketball, football, you know, military, military, military you know, mm -hmm. Olympic, not just U.S. Olympic, International Olympic. I mean, other countries have no problem hiring an American if you help them win. Trust me. And uh, when you kind of open your eyes and realize that you have a skill set that can really apply to a lot of different places, I mean, it, it opens up so many doors. Um, but it's, it's a tough pill to swallow because a lot of people... Um, feel that their identity is tied to the league they worked in. I'm an NA, I'm a hockey strength conditioning coach. I'm, I'm the, I'm the San Jose shark strength coach. It's like, no, you're not. You're Mike Potenza. You're a great strength conditioning coach. You happen to work for the sharks, but that's not who you are. And a lot of people have a problem kind of dissociating themselves with that of where they work versus what they do. Yeah, that's great. That's great advice. Yeah. Yeah, I think definitely. Even though, even though you did go to Wisconsin, we'll forget about that one. <laughs> oh, blame that... you for that. Blame you for that desk I had in Phoenix. <laughs> Don't blame me for that. <laughs> so, so what I'm talking about, uh, just a quick story. When I when I got to Phoenix, they had a fantastic weight room. It was probably ahead of its time in 2005, what a lot of the league had. But you know, huge. Geez, I don't know, 3,000 foot square foot weight room or something like that. Just huge. But right in the middle of this room, plopped in the middle of it, was this huge elevated desk looked like a throne in the middle of the room. And I hated it because it took up so much room, but the GM loved it. And I was like, where, where did this come from? And the trainers go, came from Wisconsin. You <laughs> Wisconsin has one just like it. <laughs> the backstory to that too was because there was an old hockey strength coach there that then transitioned into the Phoenix Coyotes role. But one of the first times I met Mike and we got to talk and, he, and the, he's like, where were you prior to the show? And I was like, oh, I was at the University of Wisconsin. He goes, well, you could take that desk out of here. He said, oh, it's going to be firewood. I was like, I don't want that desk. Oh, so I hated that desk for all seven years. And then what happens year after I leave? They get rid of it. Yeah. Oh. That's how it works.
That's how it works. That's mm-hmm. how it works. Well, I think I think on on that on that anecdote, I think that's uh, the perfect place to wrap up. Uh, Mike, thank you so much for your time. Are, are there any any final thoughts, parting words, places where people can find you on interwebs and all? Of those oh, well, I, you know what? I'm on Twitter, but I'm not on Twitter, so I'm not very active on Twitter. I kind of follow it a little bit uh, just to kind of pay attention to a few things. I think I use it more for entertainment than I do information. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. So people are welcome to follow me and contact me on LinkedIn. Those are probably the two best ways to, to get a hold of them if they want to. So, um, but you know, parting thoughts. Uh, I just, I, I think it's, it's an exciting time to be in our realm because things are really evolving. You know, I, I, I speak like how it was back when I was in the sport or, you know, when Mike started or whatever, and you look at where we were then versus where now, and it's just amazing how far it's evolved some for the better, some for the worse, but like how staffs are expanding, technology are expanding, roles are expanding. It's a pretty exciting time to be involved with, with the industry, not just strength conditioning, but you know, the sport technology industry and, and even the sports medicine industry. It's, it's, it's pretty cool to see directors going because it's finally getting its due. I, I think teams are finally realizing, you know, after investing in players and investing facilities are saying, hmm, maybe we should invest in people for a change. And uh, it'd be great to see salaries eventually reflect that. But right now, quantity is reflecting that, which is a good thing because now, you know, we have three people doing the job of what one person used to have to do, which is a good thing. Here, here. Mike, thanks for your time. It's always great to catch up with you and, and uh, learn from your experiences. And, and if you ever want to take a page out of Troy Flanagan's book and redo the hockey benches to ergonomically and, and, and provide heat in them, David and I will be partners. <laughs> oh, that'd be awesome. That'd be awesome. I'd love that. I'm sure, I'm sure the backup goalies would love that too. Oh, maybe, <laughs> yeah. maybe cup holders. <laughs> yeah, I know. That'd be awesome. Hey guys, I really appreciate the time. I enjoyed, uh, enjoyed speaking with you both. Thanks buddy. Thanks Mike. Appreciate it. Awesome. Take care. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find links to everything discussed, show notes, all of that good stuff at the official website of SCAF, ProHockeyStrength.com. At our website, you'll also find hundreds of articles, videos, webinars, presentations, lots of great stuff. Right now, we have a free article from Sean Scan, the head strength conditioning coach of the Minnesota Wild, on the high-low approach to hockey training. You can read that for free. You can read hundreds of articles for free. So head on over to ProHockeyStrength.com. Come.